Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, David Rooney is fascinated by clocks, the son of a clockmaker and former curator of timekeeping at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Rooney has studied everything from sundials to clock-based GPS satellites and finds that marking time has played a major role in shaping civilization and in wielding power. For thousands of years, time has been harnessed, politicized, and weaponized, writes Rooney in his new book titled About Time. He'll spend a little time with us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The next time you watch the seconds ticking away on a clock face and start to get nervous about how you're spending your time, consider that it's no accident. David Rooney says timekeepers across centuries have wielded clocks to impose morality or control behavior, while others have used it to secure power. In his new book, About Time, A History of Civilization in Twelve Clocks, Rooney looks at how clocks, which are embedded in our daily lives and credited with advancing civilization, have rarely been just a matter of keeping time. David Rooney, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad to have you. And I guess it's probably best to start by clarifying what constitutes a clock. Well, that's a really good question, and and I, and I wanted to answer it in a slightly different way in this book than than usually. Usually, people focus on what a clock is, what a watch is, what a sundial is, and they're kind of they're kind of put into different categories and considered as separate artifacts, and that can be really useful sometimes. But I wanted to I wanted to zoom out and 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 just imagine any artifact, any device that's been made by humans to mark the passage of time to be a clock. So that was the definition that I used in this because I felt that if we did that, then we, we could therefore consider a sundial as a clock mm-hmm. or a water clock as a clock. We might see some of the bigger themes that might connect them. Uh, and I found it a very useful um, way of looking at the subject. Yes, and I think it's so fascinating when we think about how <laughs> beginning with the sundial all the way to the present day, especially these days, how important accurate timekeeping is to the functioning of our daily lives. And what's amazing is that it was such a free-for-all, like what 
time it was <laughs> was such a free-for-all up until the early 1800s in the UK. I was wondering if you could begin with the fascinating story of what local time was and when it became standardized in the UK. Yeah, and it really is a fascinating story. Um, and, and it's a story which you can tell in two ways. There's kind of a traditional story and then there's a story which I think um, takes it on a little bit. Before about 1840, 1850, any town or village or city or hamlet in the UK, and it was the same everywhere else in the world, would keep its own local time. The time according to the sun where you were. And that was fine. That was absolutely fine because, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd live and work locally. And the fastest that you might be able to travel somewhere else would be by horse. And so these local times didn't matter, the fact that they were different from town to town. And what happened in the 1830s and 40s was the building of railways, mm -hmm. particularly east-west railways, um, meant that the time at every station stop, um, not only would um, you need to know the time there, but you'd need to know the time difference between the two places. So for timetabling reasons, and also for safety, because trains were sharing single tracks, the railways decided, well, look, it doesn't make sense to have all this multiplicity of local times. Right. And you have to reset your watch every station stop. They said, why don't we just choose one? We'll standardise our time across the network. In, in the UK, that usually meant London time, because that was the headquarters of most of the railways. And London time was set by Greenwich at the Royal Observatory there. And so that's as far as the story goes, which was the railways led to the standardization of time across Britain by about 1850. But I was finding increasingly that that didn't quite add up to me because into the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, local time still existed. And there were so many examples that I found where people were talking about local time and also being confused about whether time meant local time or Greenwich time. Mm. And in fact, it was a later story, and it was a story more to do with kind of Victorian morals that led to standardization so that it could standardize human behavior. So, yeah. So yeah. Well, there, there were, two, I mean, there were two major concerns in, in Britain in, in the sort of the mid 19th century, which were factory working conditions, particularly for um, young people, for children, and, and temperance, alcohol consumption, the fact that. You know, some people felt that people were drinking too much, but it was a liberal government. Um, could the government tell people to drink less and how successful would that be? Well, actually, clocks then became tools for changing our behaviour in both those circumstances, for factory working conditions and for alcohol. Time limits were put on both. And clocks, therefore, became kind of the, the controllers, the, um, the proxies for, for what the moralists and the people in charge wanted, drink less and work, and work fewer hours. But to do that, you need to have, um, it needs to be absolutely clear what time you're talking about. And it was that, I argue, that led to standardization of time in Britain, um, a lot later than the railway story. So why would it be necessary for all of these, you know, pubs, for example, <laughs> to be on the same time? And I did spend 
quite a lot of time in London's <laughs> pubs trying to work out this story. Um, it came down to one of um, it came down to one of if you're going to punish a pub a publican a pub owner for serving alcohol after, at the end of licensed hours, mm. like after midnight, um, that'll only stand up in court if the if what midnight is is fully understood. And if that meant local time, there was so much opportunity for, for, for misunderstandings or confusion or for people deliberately trying to get around the rules that it was felt and it was talked about in the British Parliament, actually, you know, for, the, for this pub licensing scheme, this legislation to work, we should connect, it was said, all of the pubs in London to the Greenwich Observatory which people kind of laughed at at the time, but just a few years later, very many London pubs were connected to the Greenwich Observatory by electric wires to get time signals. You also mentioned how timekeeping and labor in the workplace ended up being tied together. Can you just talk briefly about how timekeeping was abused um, and and how it uh, precipitated reform of labor rules? Yeah, and... uh, these factory working conditions again. There was a real, there was real horror at the at the conditions that particularly children were working in industries like the textiles industries, in places like Lancashire in the north of England. And so, putting limits on time for how long you could, children would have to work um, felt like a great idea. But which clock do you use? So we've talked about standardising the time, but actually choosing a clock that would act as the start and end of a shift was really important. But the person who controls the time on the clock controls the, 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 the length of time that the people have to work if they don't have their own clocks and watches. Right. And, and what the legislators were horrified to find when they were looking into this was that some of these mills or factories were directly tampering with time. They were directly changing the time on clocks through the day, forbidding workers from having their own watches firing anybody who presumed to know too much about the science of horology. And in some cases, actually making clocks that didn't keep real time, but the the time that they kept was linked to the speed that the machines were working. So if if the machines were running slowly, the workers would have to work longer shifts to make up for it. And this was, this was a con and everybody knew that it was a con and it took a lot of effort to, to put it right. We're talking with David Rooney, author of About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. And you are listeners, if you have any reactions to what you're hearing, you can share them with us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email them to forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook with your questions or thoughts. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. So you say that, you know, it was believed that that standardized time came from railways. You talk about how labor reform, temperance were two key factors that contributed to standardizing time. And when you when you talk about temperance, I'm also struck by how early time and virtue were linked. You have this chapter entitled Virtue, and it's about the hourglass, um, in particular, the hourglass of temperance that's depicted in a 14th century painting. Can you talk a little bit about this painting and how it, it really, in many ways, abetted our idea of using time virtuously? 
it's a most astonishing picture. It, it still survives. It's a, it's a wall fresco uh, in the Palazzo Publico in Siena in Italy, which I went to see a couple of years ago. A most astonishing, painted in 1338 by the artist Ambrogio Lorenzetti. And it was, I mean, these, these three frescoes around the room, which were telling the story about good and bad government of this city of Siena. And then you stand with your back to the window and look towards the, the wall that's bathed in light. And there at the heart of the picture is the figure of the virtue of temperance. And she's, she's really quite startling in the, in the picture. Temperance, the virtue, meaning to live kind of moderate life of self-restraint. And what's astonishing about this picture is that in her hand, she's holding a device. It's the device which we know as the sand glass or the hourglass. And it's in fact the oldest known depiction of, of an hourglass anywhere. And what, what, what that picture, what the people who painted that picture was, were trying to do was to equate temperance, the virtue of temperance, which people increasingly believed was the most important virtue to live life by, trying to equate that with the passage of time, but with this very powerful and potent symbol of the hourglass, which, if you think about it, very vividly depicts the passage of time, but also about the potential for time to, to run, for the sands to run out, for time to end. And with that picture and with many that followed, the idea was that if you live a virtuous life in life, um, it, it's, it's, it's the best life you can live. In fact, it's a Christ-like life. And in fact, that symbol has lived with us ever since, really, the symbol of, of the hourglass as being an exhortation to live well. And as you say, we continue to live in a world that equates personal timeliness with moral righteousness. We're talking with David Rooney all about clocks, all about time, which is the title of his book. So stay with us for more after the break. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about clocks and time with David Rooney, who writes in his new book about time, quote, what fascinates me most is what clocks mean, a question which is answered by looking at why people have made them. Rooney is an orologist, a historian of technology and former curator of timekeeping at the Royal Observatory. His book is titled About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. And listeners, what role do clocks play in your life? Does timekeeping help you order your life or is it 
more of a burden? Do you live by alarms or try to keep yourself from always knowing the time? You can share your reflections and questions at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Could you talk a little bit, David Rooney, about uh, daylight savings time? One of the things that I was really surprised by, we were talking about time and morals, is that there are sort of moral underpinnings to the evolution of daylight saving time as well, um, and that it originated, at least in the UK, as far as you know. Daylight saving time is such a remarkable story. I mean, it just encapsulates so much of interest in the story of time and clocks. Um, and it's and it, and it arouses so much passion to this day. Um, and yeah, its origins fundamentally go back to a person called William Willett, who was um, a late 19th century house builder in the South of England. He also liked to ride a horse, and he also had a very strong set of views on how people should live their lives. And he used to go for morning horse rides in the woods near his home, which isn't too far from where I am, actually, in London. And um, in the summertime, he'd be riding past houses on the way to the woods. It was morning, the sun was up, but the shades were still pulled, the curtains were closed, people were still asleep. And he was incensed, he was morally incensed by what he called the waste of daylight. And he wanted people to get up earlier in summer and therefore go to bed earlier, which has the effect of making the evenings lighter for longer. And he decided to do something about it. And he campaigned for years and years for, for clocks to be changed, every clock and watch to be changed in the spring and then in the fall, so rather than telling us to get up early, because who would do that if they were told? The clock tells us. Now, he never lived to see this scheme in, in, um, put into action. He died in 1915. He'd been lobbying for years. In 1916, the year after, um, Britain was at war with Germany. Germany decided to try daylight saving to save um, lighting fuel costs for the factories making munitions. And then, and then many other countries followed suit quite quickly afterwards. And then through the 20th century and into the 21st, I think I calculated that something like a quarter of the population of Earth live in countries which have a daylight saving time. Wow. And you just think about how many clocks and watches are being physically changed twice a year because this, this one guy in England <laughs> over 120 years ago thought we, were, thought we, were, we, we should get up early. It's astonishing when you think about it. Yes. Well, uh, we've got some calls coming in, and let me start with Siva in San Mateo. Hi, Siva. Um, I was fascinated with your story of uh, Mr. Willits, but I'm wondering if you took into account in your book about the Sabbath, which was a day of rest that's in the, one of the Ten Commandments, and there was a big pushback. Uh, against the godly idea that oh, we we are holy ourselves because we follow that commandment of taking one day off that's not controlled by a clock 
but by nature, by the stars and 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 so on, that defines the Sabbath. So, um, mm. I historically there was a big big pushback that people who who remembered the Sabbath and kept it holy um, were lazy. So it's well, sort of the same concept of of Mr. Willits that was wanted people to. Um, but his 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 reasoning was was quite different. Well, well, Siva, thanks. I think you've laid the foundation for a lot that actually you do, David Rooney, think about, especially with regard to the relationship between clocks and and faith. Yeah, and and that was a great um, comment, Siva. Thank you. Um, and 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 absolutely, the relationship between clocks and time and faith religions is just huge. It's it's it, it's it's fundamental um and in the book i talk quite a lot about this and and i wanted to kind of separate two aspects of this out from each other when thinking about how clocks play have always played a role in faiths the first was to think of clocks as fairly practical devices for um automating the ringing of bells in many cases to allow for the daily pattern of prayers, uh, whether that was in uh, Christianity or in Islam or in Judaism. This, this kind of daily pattern and through the night um, had previously been carried out in many other ways, whether that was with crowing roosters uh, or sundials, um, clocks sort of automated the process. And through history, we can see examples of these. But then there was this, there was this other, one might say, higher um, uh, role for clocks, um, which in the Christian tradition is often talked about, which is facsimile replicas of the universe on Earth. And I'm thinking here about clocks like the great cathedral clocks, like Strasbourg Cathedral uh, and many others, which are these huge, elaborate, in many cases, automaton clocks, which show the movements of the heavenly bodies. I mean, they're astonishing. I mean, they're just utterly remarkable. And what they're doing is showing, as their makers believed, they were showing God's universe here on earth for, for the faithful to, um, to appreciate what God had made. But it wasn't just the Christian tradition. And when I was talking earlier about taking this kind of broader view of what clocks are, um, there's a sense that clocks were invented in the 13th century in, in Europe, but, but water clocks were invented thousands of years before that and were developed very strongly in the Islamic world um, many centuries before the 13th century Christian invention of the clock. And some of the Islamic water clocks, which similarly are, were huge and elaborate and showed the movements of the sun, the moon, the stars and many other patterns, enabled people to see the universe, to see heaven on earth. And I think putting those two things together, we can see just two examples where faith has been a profound driver of the development of horological technologies. Well, Matthew writes, conceptions of time are quite distinct as evidenced in traditional Native American and modern European cultural and linguistic systems. We say going into next week routinely without recognizing this reflexive frozen metaphor. 
Did the author explore changing metaphors for time? Is the cultural disconnect still present in the contact zone between industrial and indigenous cultures? I, I, what I wanted to do was to, in a book, in a book called about time, and in a book about time, I wanted to focus on clocks. So I wanted to move away from concepts of time. Um, and think about the clocks that people have made and see what they reveal about the, the civilizations that made them. Um, and, and, and certainly there are, there are some very significant shifts into the industrial era. Um, and um, changes in how time is perceived around the world from different civilizations and different cultures, absolutely, yes. And David Rooney's book is about time, a history of civilization in 12 clocks. And if you want to join the conversation about time, 866-733-6786, the number again, 866-733-6786. Email us forum at kqed.org or post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum. I wanted to talk with you a bit about how timekeeping was abused for ill ends. We did talk a little bit about it in the factory context, but it is much bigger than that, especially when you link Britain's colonization effort with its new ability to keep time on ships. Can you give us sort of the background on that, like the longitude problem and so on, and how that enabled uh, Britain to basically go forth and colonize? Yeah, if, if faith and religion was one profound driver of horological technologies, of clocks, then empire building was very much um, one of the others. Um, as the European maritime empires started to be built from the 15th century onwards, and really started to accelerate in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was a problem. They were maritime empires, which meant ships traveling overseas and they needed to be able to navigate. They needed to know where they were out of sight of land. Right. And they needed to be able to do that fairly accurately so that the ships could travel faster and more in, you know, in greater numbers and for the voyages to be safer. And that wasn't to preserve the crews, that was to preserve the vast cargoes of the riches of empire that they were trading. Uh -huh. um, it's, it was said by so, so, so there's a lot going on here. To solve, to solve the problem of navigation, which was called the longitude problem, uh, involves clocks. The longitude problem is about knowing your east-west position. Latitude, which is your north-south position, was quite easy to find on board a ship, but longitude wasn't. But the solution to that problem was, was, was time, because the Earth rotates on its axis once per day. So 360 degrees of rotation every 24 hours. So if you wanted to find your longitude difference from, let's say, Greenwich to where you are on board your ship in the middle of the ocean, it's all about time differences. If you know the time in both places at the same instant, Greenwich and your ship, then you can calculate your longitude between the two places by that simple calculation of 360 degrees equals 24 hours. But the problem was that nobody had ever made a, a clock that was accurate and robust enough to keep time accurately on board, a, on board a ship during a voyage. There was an alternative, which was to use the moon and the stars in the sky, like the hands of a giant celestial clock. And for centuries, it was known that those two, those two um, 
systems would solve the problem, but nobody was able to make the technology to do so. In the 18th century, both problems were solved. The, 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 the chronometer method, as it became known, which was about carrying a precise timepiece on board ship, and the lunar distance method, this astronomical method, both were available to mariners from about 1770. And so by the turn of the 19th century, um, the, the empires of all the European maritime nations, but Britain playing a strong role in this, were colonizing more and more of the earth. And what I wanted to talk about um, when I was exploring this was not just to think about the, these chronometers being carried on ships, which enabled empires to be built, but also the vast infrastructure of time that needed to be built around the coastlines of empire to provide the time for the mariners to set their chronometers right as they moved around the globe. Because normally, when I, I used to work at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, and the stories that we told tended to be stories about Greenwich. It tended to be about the imperial centre, the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, the Astronomer Royal at Greenwich, the time signal, the, a, a time ball at Greenwich in the early 19th century. And in this book, I'd become very uncomfortable with telling it like that. Hmm. I, wanted to, I wanted to go to some of the places where the colonisers colonised and see what, what was happening there. And I, I, I tell the account of the southern tip of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. Yes. Um, which had its own parallel infrastructure compared with Greenwich. It had a royal observatory, it had a time ball, and it had a government royal astronomer. And the time signal that was first um, provided was hardly subtle. It was a British cannon fired at noon over the heads of the African people who were being systematically displaced from their lands as the British um, colonised. Yes. And I was really taken by this vast infrastructure, which showed just how important time was for the building of empires, that it was worth the, the huge amount of money and resources to build this infrastructure, because the nation that ruled the waves ruled the world. In fact, it was said by Adam Smith, the 18th century economist who was writing about how nations get rich, that the discovery of the sea route between Europe and Asia via the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, was one of the two, he said, greatest and most important events recorded in the history of mankind. The other was what he called the discovery of America. And these places of empire, therefore, I think um, are, are most significant in us understanding the power that clocks have in shaping the world. Yes. I mean, you talk about the firing of a cannon at the Cape of Good Hope, right? But also in terms of just, you know, kind of the looming clock towers that we see <laughs> all over the place. Are those, in your view, just sort of like expressions of power? And of course, you know, there's Big Ben. Is that an expression of of power, national identity, and then in places where where it, it would set up these sort of observatories and towers, really an expression of colonial power. That's exactly right. And so there's this parallel infrastructure that was built by the empires, as well as the coastal time signals to enable them to move around the oceans. Everywhere, let's take the British Empire, everywhere the British Empire colonized in the 19th century, they built clock towers in the towns and cities of the people that were now under their rule. These big 
tall, looming clock towers, which which sounded the Westminster chimes across the, <laughs> the cities of India and Africa and Australia. Um, what there's one there was one clock tower which was built. I mean, the, I mean, India was where this was perhaps most um, profoundly and, and expressed. H- hundreds of clock towers built by the British in um, in India. One of which in a, in a, a college in called Mayo College in the town of Ujmer in today's Rajasthan. Um, it was intended to, this college was intended to be the Eton School of India. And with the school came a clock tower and it's still there. I haven't visited it yet, I, I will. And at the top of this clock tower above the dials is a metal crown. And just comparing the picture of the clock with the picture of Queen Victoria herself, who was proclaimed Empress of India, the year that Mayo College construction began, they are the same. The the clock wears Queen Victoria's crown. The clock is the Empress of India. And I started, and this might sound fanciful, but I really started to see all of these clock towers in all of these imperial towns and cities as the emperor or the empress themselves, standing unmissable to say who was in charge. And, and yes, therefore, Big Ben, in, in a different way, but just as powerfully, was expressing um, expressing the power and dominance of, of the ruling classes, without doubt. And, and then factoring into that, as you've mentioned there, the idea of national identity being poured into clocks. Big Ben is a symbol of Britishness, being Big Ben is British people. Um, I started to look at these clock towers in, in a very different light. Yes, you have this quote where you say, in a world of violent disorder, the towers themselves are part of the ordering infrastructure and the ordering infrastructure of cities in this case. We're talking with David Rooney. We're talking about clocks and time. Rooney is a historian of technology and former curator of timekeeping at the Royal Observatory. We'll have more with him after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with David Rooney, author of About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. And you, our listeners, are with us telling us uh, what your relationship is to clocks, uh, to time. Are you somebody who uses timekeeping as a way of ordering your life and it's important to always know the time? Or is it something that you find more of a burden or maybe even more of a sense of you are not in control? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Fred in Marin City. Hi, Fred. Uh, hi there, folks. Uh, thanks for this show. Uh, I just want to point out, uh, can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. Okay, so I just want to point out that the Antikythera mechanism, uh, an ancient Greek uh, hand-powered uh, computer, was found in 1901, 
it was capable of uh, being uh, a timepiece to predict uh, the four year. Um, it could it could it could be used to time the games and know when a, a particular Olympic game was going to be according to their schedule four years ahead or at any other time and to predict positions of planets, eclipses, and so on. Mm. And the technology to create this device uh, would have been far, far older. Um, it's called the Antikythera Mechanism, and uh, it kind of resets our whole conception of how, to, you know, of what, of our time, uh, the timeline of uh, our, <laughs> our ability to use clocks and so on. Thank you. Fred, thanks. David Rooney, any reaction? That's a really, Fred, that's a really um, important contribution. The Antikythera mechanism um, has done such great service to us in stretching our time horizons backwards. Um, it is astonishingly um, um, complex and it's, and it's still giving up its secrets. It still has many more secrets to give. And a lot of people are working on trying to reveal those secrets to understand its complexity. And as you say, it, it, it can't have been the first, um, and so the technology to make it was older. So in this, uh, and, and so, so in the book, I wanted to pull back our time horizons in a similar way. Um, water clocks are more than three and a half thousand years old. Sundials are about three and a half thousand years old. Um, and these geared mechanisms like the Antikythera mechanism are easily 2,000 years old or older. And therefore, to see, to see a sophisticated relationship with time as something to do with either the modern period or the West is, of course, wrong. Um, in fact, I, I started the book with, with a story about um, a clock, it's a sundial, which is 2,200 years old from ancient Rome. Um, and, and it connects in with what I was talking about a little while ago about clock towers and their, their role as kind of proxies for rulers to keep us in order because they're standing over us. Um, and I, I raise this because there's a, there's a fantastic quotation from ancient Rome. What I'm talking about here is Rome's first public sundial, installed in the year 263 BCE at the heart of the city of Rome in the Forum, and it was a sundial that had been mounted on a tall column to look over the heads of Roman people. Now, it, it, I mean, sundials had been around for a very long time before that, but this was Rome's first public one. Um, and what I found really interesting about this was the reaction of Roman people to the arrival of this clock in their midst. The quotation from just a few years after this sundial was installed, and then it was followed by many others in Rome. If you don't mind, I'll just say a few words from, from that quotation, because it sounds really very modern, I think. Mm -hmm. um, th here's the quotation. A playwright made a character exclaim, the gods confound that man who first discovered the hours and who first set up a sundial here, who smashed the day in debates for me. And he went on to say, when I was a boy, my stomach was the only sundial. It was the best and truest compared to all of these sundials. He said, it used to warn me when to eat 
but now I can't eat unless the sun says so. Now, that just feels so very modern, the idea that we're, we're ruled by the clock, that it's cutting our days into smaller and smaller pieces, and that we have to obey the clock. We can't eat when we're hungry. We must wait until the clock tells us, which feels like probably something many of us have felt if we're on a, a long factory shift or, a, or an office um, morning, until the clock lets you, you can't eat your lunch. And yet that's 2,200 years old. So when I was kind of saying that, you know, there are these sort of civilization level themes that cut across all horological technologies, there's an example where 2,000 years ago, people felt pretty much the same as many of us feel today. Absolutely. Let me go to Annette in Sacramento. Hi, Annette. Hi. I am. That's fascinating. That is a truly fascinating quote because I do feel like my day is broken up into pieces. I am obsessed with knowing what time it is. I have clocks all over my house. I am always 10 minutes early. If I'm not 10 minutes early, I'm late. Mm. And it just dictates. It's crazy. Um, you know, my <laughs> daughter doesn't have clocks all over her house. And whenever I'm there, I, what time is it? What time is it? And well, I obviously always have a phone in my pocket, so I'm checking it. But, yeah, it's, it's, it, it can be overwhelming, to say the least. Annette, thanks for sharing that. And, and you know, David Rooney, a lot of people, as this pandemic, um, well, it, it waned and then it waxed again, I guess, but there was this sense of reassessment of life and a determination not to, to waste another moment, I guess, to some extent. But I'm curious, how should this understanding of clocks that you are sharing in your book help inform, how should it inform our relationship with time, our relationship with ourselves? I mean, Annette is talking about and, and even with each other. Um, Annette, I mean, Annette sounds like a person after my own heart. Um, I had to go around my flat and stop all of the clocks before this interview because otherwise the noise that they make <laughs> would have been overwhelming. Um, and there's something really very significant here in the way that Annette described that sense of being overwhelmed sometimes by clocks and by the time that they tell, because it's being overwhelmed by the control that they have over our lives, I argue. And there's a, there's a very strong counter theme through, through the book and through the story of clocks and civilizations, which is about resistance, which is to say that the stories that I've kind of focused on so far have been fairly top-down, the idea that other people are controlling us. We don't have control of the time kept on these clocks, and it's, it's you know, power being delivered from on high. But through history, and very much into the present, is this theme of people resisting that power or that control. In many ways, I described some of them, and I described some episodes that, that express it quite vividly. Some people have, have used acts of violence against clocks, um, because of what the clocks stand for um, through history. It, they haven't all been acts of violent, quiet acts of resistance, of refusal to, um, to succumb to the clock uh, through history um, and very strongly into the industrial period when clocks have been kind of in our faces more. Mm -hmm. And then there are groups of people now who are really thinking hard about how we can get how we can equip ourselves with tools to think about what relationship we want to have with clocks 
and whether we want to change that relationship. And as you say, in the pandemic, many of us have had cause to rethink many aspects of their lives and thinking about how we react to clocks is a really strong part. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out in the coming couple of years. And, and, I, and I mentioned some projects which are to do with kind of creating conversations among ourselves about, well, long-term thinking really, um, to, to, to act as a kind of corrective to that hyper accurate slicing and dicing of our days by clocks into smaller and smaller pieces, mm. as we heard the Romans say. So that might include a clock being made in America called the clock of the long now, a massive clock that could run for 10,000 years if looked after, a mechanical clock um, described as kind of as a mechanism or a myth to make long-term thinking automatic and common rather than difficult and rare as its, as its maker described. Uh, and I talk also about um, the time capsule that was buried in Japan in Osaka in 1970, which contains a clock which will run for 5,000 years. It's a plutonium clock and it will be pull, pulled out of the ground in, in the year 6970, but only if there's a civilization there to do that. And so the kind of the conversations that it prompts now are about making good decisions now to ensure that there's a civilization in 5,000 or 10,000 years time. And I think all of these conversations come together with, with what Annette describes and what, what many people feel, which is that we perhaps, we perhaps have, in some senses, a fairly toxic relationship with clocks. Clocks are made by people. People are, people have, people are making them for reasons. But we can choose to we can choose to understand them better. We can choose to look beyond their faces and see who is behind them. And then we're better informed. Knowledge is power. We can you know ask better questions or hold people to account. We're talking with David Rooney, author of About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks, a historian of technology and former curator of timekeeping at the Royal Observatory. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Craig writes, pilots in the Federal Aviation Administration use UTC, or Coordinated Universal Time, for virtually everything, like weather reports. Could you comment on the use of UTC rather than local time? I found it extraordinarily useful to use UTC when setting up Zoom meetings for various participants around the world. David Rooney? Oh, I've got a lot to say about UTC. <laughs> we don't have time for all of it. UTC is really significant. So UTC is effectively... Greenwich Mean Time. It's not quite the same. Uh, I don't need to go into the technicalities of that, but UTC is the time um, at the zero degrees longitude. And, and as your caller mentioned, pilots use UTC. Many people use UTC because it takes, the, it takes away the need to understand the systems of time zones, to understand the geographies of the places that you're visiting or Zooming with, what time is it on the West Coast or the East Coast? You know, you've got to do a lot of, in some cases, a lot of work to find out. Daylight saving time makes it even harder, particularly around spring and fall. Um, and so the use of a single universal time for the world is something which has a very interesting history, and it's a political history. Um, the question which is often asked is why, is, why was Greenwich time selected to be the prime meridian of the world? In other words, why is UTC based on Greenwich and not Paris or Washington or any of the other meridians? 
And then we come, we have to come back to Empire for that. In fact, it was at a conference in, in the US, in Washington, DC, that led to the decision for Greenwich to be selected in the year 1884, which set up the time zone system for the world. But it was in the context of a discussion about a universal time for the world. And that's what led to UTC. Um, it was in a building just west of the White House that the world came together and decided that Greenwich would be that universal time. And why? Because it was said 75% of the ships in the world use charts based on the Greenwich Meridian. It would inconvenience the fewest people. But of course, it was an expression of the power of the British Empire. Mm. That's why all those ships use charts based on Greenwich. And so kind of wherever we look, we think it's easy to think that we're looking at objective time systems uh, and they're very useful to us. Please don't get me wrong. The, the, <laughs> yeah. systems, the systems that we've built, the clocks that we've built have shaped the modern world and have been incredible powers for progress. But there's a politics embedded in them all. And that's, that's history. We can recover the, re the reasons be behind the ways these systems were developed. And I think it's quite instructive to understand some of those histories. Why Greenwich? Why not Washington? Um, a clock was built in, in, in Mecca. In, it was completed just, just 10, 10 or so years ago, overlooking the great mosque of Mecca, the most holy site of Islam. And it's another clock tower. And it's um, six times the size of Big Ben. And it looks like Big Ben, except it's in an Islamic style and it has a crescent moon at the top. Um, and when that was unveiled in, I think it was 2012, um, the, the Mecca authorities were lobbying for the prime meridian of the world to be switched from Greenwich to Mecca because it made a statement. As it had made a statement in 1884, when Greenwich was chosen, and as all of these standardization stories or time zone stories have told us, this is about people, um, people trying to get control. Well, Michelle writes, I live, eat, sleep, and breathe the topic of time right now. This is my area of research at UC Berkeley. Time is fascinating, and this topic is connecting me to all human beings in my research. I found that humans relate specific memories to specific times. Everyone has a specific take on time and what it means to them. Let me go to caller Doug in Saratoga. Hi, Doug. Hi, good morning. Um, I used to be a uh, public transit bus driver for 20 years here in the Bay Area. And we were required to have a wristwatch on our wrist. And it had to be timed daily, uh, corrected to the dispatch times within plus or minus 20 seconds. So for 20 years, I lived my life at plus or minus 20 seconds. <laughs> and in that job, you are constantly checking your watch to make sure you're on time. Or if you're not, are you ahead or are you behind? And in that time, I developed this weird habit that when I would go on vacation or on weekends, I would take my watch off and I could continuously tell what time it was within plus or minus 15 minutes, even days later after taking my watch off. And I just recently retired and I do not wear a watch. I do not have clocks on my walls. There is literally my phone for my clock and that's it. And I don't look at it very often. And can you still do the time thing within 15 minutes? <laughs> no, I'm, I, I, <laughs> You're I'm starting to. to say I am losing that capability. I have uh, no problem with not being able to do that anymore. Well, then I have hope, Doug, because I definitely feel ruled by the clock as a, as a radio host, and I know our engineer <laughs> does as well. Um, 
So, David Rooney, internal clock. There is one other comment from another David who writes, what do you think or how do you respond to people who say time is an illusion? You can also end on that if you want. We've just got about a minute or so left. Um, the, 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 the philosophers and physicists discussing what time is is something fascinating, but it makes my brain hurt. Um, <laughs> Just why you like to divide it into 12 wonderful clock stories in your book. Yeah, I mean, 12 felt like the right the right number for um, for any story about clocks. I think Doug's um, comment about the plus or minus 20 seconds, and then um, I think it's, it's a really nice illustration of that sense of resistance that, you know, he, he chose to take the clocks and wristwatches out of his life um, when he was able to. And um, I think this is something that m many people choose to do, um, which is, it's in our power. Yes, but for all the ulterior motives of clocks that we have unlocked during the course of this, do tell me why you love them so much, just in a sentence or two. And I do love them. I absolutely love them because I've grown up with clocks. My parents ran a clockmaking business in the family home, started when I was eight years old. And so I've grown up with the sound of clocks. And then in my museum career, I've worked with some of the most amazing clocks that have ever been made. Um, and I think they're remarkable devices. And that's what made me want to find out much more about what they mean. Well, David Rooney, we so appreciate having you on and thank you for your book. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. My thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.